You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the podcast. The monkey fist is the most difficult of all Chinese martial arts. It calls for coordination of every part of the body, limbs, eyes, brain, and heart. Philly Stand Up, episode 79 of the podcast is here. My guest this week is... Yo, what's up, world? This is the incredible Mr. Fantastic Skin Riches from the legendary Rocksteady crew. DJ, burger connoisseur, beer connoisseur. I rock the stage with everybody from Dilated Peoples, De La Soul, Cut Chemist, DJ Shadow, DJ Muro. This kind of goes on and on. Mr. Fantastic Skin Riches taking all DJs to school. Rocking with that official soul brother shit. The return of raw hip-hop and dynamite soul. Yo, soul brother, I don't think Heads is really ready for what's about to jump out of these speakers. I think they must have forgot about what this hip-hop shit is based off of. Hailing from Philadelphia, a city known for producing internationally known DJs such as Jazzy Jeff, Cash Money, and King Brit, Scheme Richards has put in nearly 40 years of DJing and producing. Digging and spinning everything from funk and soul, classic hip-hop breaks, and all things funky, he continuously strives to separate himself from the pack. The global DJ, cultural ambassador, foodie, and pop culture preserver, Scheme Richard, swings by the podcast to put me on game. Reminisce about the golden era, even though I suspect he hates that term, and what Philly is all about. Oh, and we talk about kung fu films. What you really know about that. Real quick, BedroomBeethoven's.com is the website. Feel free to visit, stop by, and peruse. This episode, like all the other episodes, can be found there and anywhere you get podcasts. Also, you can buy a t-shirt and or join the Patreon to support the show. Patreon.com slash, you guessed it, Bedroom Beethoven's. Thank you guys for checking this episode out, and I urge everyone to also check out Nostalgia King, the app, the website, the man, the legend, all things Scheme Richard. Episode 79, Party People, in the place to be. This is where it's at. Well, let me see if I still remember the old intro. Uh... The incredible Mr. Fantastic, Scheme Richards, lover of all things fresh, fly, flavorful, but never trendy, sneakerhead, beat creator, graph fanatic, nostalgia king, Scheme Richards makes the whole world sing. <laughs> yeah, man. You got, you got, I can't even recite that one anymore. <laughs> I mean, this this is a big one for me because, uh, you know, you interview people too, so if anyone can kind of critique me on my conversation skills it would be you so go easy on me i mean you were podcasting before joe rogan with the two dollar soul show so i'm i'm literally just a guest in the house that you built yo that two dollar soul show 
that I check that every once in a while. That still gets so many hits. Like I'm surprised, and people are always like, "Yo, you need to bring it back. You need to bring it back." But I feel like I'm doing so many mixes at the at the moment. But I do need to bring it bring it back because people love that show. So yeah, thanks for shouting out the two dollar soul show. I mean, in this day and age, it could literally be the two dollar soul show. I mean, if you did a Patreon and people gave two dollars for new episodes, I mean, it would pay for itself. Literally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this, I guess, this is the moment now where you know us as artists, we should be trying to. I don't want to say capitalize on things, but at least you know, getting the value out of what we do, you know, and and generating some revenue, you know, especially because we can't travel at the moment as DJs or artists, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely correct about that. Well, let's go to simpler times. I'm, I'm a 90s kid. What was a black household in the 70s? Paint me a picture here because there's there's two things that I know, right? The, the 70s was the best because everything was original. Everything was fresh. Art nowadays, it's borrowed, stolen, influenced, and inspired. But you've also been a collector since birth. You know, were your, were your parents collectors or did you just break the mold? No, I think I just broke the mold. My cousin who was was a collector as well, you know, he was a big comic book collector. His father was actually a comic book collector. But, you know, growing up, my parents, you know, as a DJ, like my parents had records. That's where I think I got my love of music was from them. You know, they had funk, soul, jazz, a lot of gospel in the house. You know, my grandparents always had records. They had a lot of gospel in the house. My grandfather had a lot of jazz in the house. And, you know, like the household was just a musical household, a lot of TV, because, you know, TV in the 70s, the Jeffersons, Good Times, like all of those shows were just was just great. So I think it was just culture just all around in general, which is which is why I am the way I am today, you know. But it, it it was kind of like just a typical middle class household where, you know, you go to school, you get good grades, you come home, you get to ride your bike. You know, you don't get good grades. Eh, you know, you're not riding this summer. <laughs> that didn't change. That was my childhood, too. It, it didn't change. <laughs> you know, and like you said, like art right now, you know, everything is so borrowed and, and kind of disposable. But back then, like we were living in such a moment that we valued it, but we didn't place value on it. And that's why a lot of that stuff now is so valuable because it was something that we preserve. Now it's like you throw things away, you know, as it gets old. But back then you you had it rebuilt. You know, you had a technician come in and fix your TV. You didn't just go buy a new flat screen. You had the repairman come in and, and, and fix your TV. That's true. So back in the day, if you if you were bad, you couldn't ride your bike. And what what's the country tally up to now? Like how many places have you visited? You're in the triple digits now, I imagine. I, yo, I've been the only place that I haven't been that I really want to go to is Australia. That's the one place I haven't been, but I mean, all over America, I've been all over Europe. I haven't been to Iceland, but you know, Australia is the one place that I haven't been to Japan. I, I go to every year. I've been going there, uh, what, 12 years now, every year consistently Korea. I go to every year. Uh, Amsterdam is like second home base, you know, Germany. I'm there every year. So I like, I've been around the world, Africa. I just came back from Ethiopia, uh, in February. So yeah, I've touched down a lot of places in the world. So I mean, how how is that? I mean, you were doing like you said DJ workshops in in Africa, and now you can't even leave your house. So, I mean, how how hard is it to adjust? Like really? Well, honestly, for me, it's not hard to adjust. I'm a DJ. I'm a collector. I'm a homebody, right? So I'm used to being in the house. The fact that I can't necessarily leave the country or leave the city, yeah, that's okay. But I know how to re- to to like flip it. And I have a lot of projects that I've, you know, either started or finished 
you know, and release. So if I was traveling, I wouldn't have had time to be able to do all these projects. So I just, I just funneled my productivity into another direction, which was doing these projects and releasing these projects, you know, doing more writing, writing for different magazines and publications and trying to put together the Nostalgia King magazine. So, you know, it's, it's not really hard for me. The hard part definitely though will kick in and probably in the next month or two when we still can't travel. And then I'll be looking like, all right, I have to get out of here. <laughs> I've read all my comic books. I've spanned all my records. <laughs> right. It's weird because like when Q records shut down, physical media was on the decline. The vinyl resurgence wasn't until like 2013 ish. And now record stores are thriving now, but this pandemic is once again, putting a hurt on those brick and mortar stores. It's almost deja vu. Yeah, it really is. Um, a lot of them knew how to adapt and just start selling on Instagram to keep, you know, to keep the, the lights on, even though the lights were off, but to keep the lights on and the rent paid, you know, a lot of them switched to Instagram and, and that show, you know, it turned out to be fruitful for them. A few shops have opened back up and they're of course doing the social distancing thing, um, but yeah, a lot, I would say a lot of shops in the States here are starting to open back up and, and, you know, starting to generate some revenue. Other countries, yeah, Amsterdam shops have been back open. Japan shops have been open. So like America's always first on everything, but we're so far behind in the last place on this whole pandemic thing. Yeah. It, I, I'm not really digging the transition because it's not like you can go to Japan and walk into a vinyl store give the vendor a piece of paper of your want list and then you you get it now alchemist is on twitter or dj mugs and they'll sell you a splatter colored vinyl edition out of 50 for $120 with an obi strip and it's signed or it's glow in the dark and yeah you know like for me i still i still believe in like you know there's a certain price and a certain value on things you know and everybody has their price or what they feel as though the value of something is as a collector, I didn't come in as a collector. I came in as like, oh, I'm going to buy this new comic off the wall because it's, you know, it's 12 cents. You know, I I can't sell new product for certain for, you know, for uh, absorbent amounts. But, you know, some people will do that. And, you know, more power to them. I just I, I want to make things accessible for people, you know, and if I really want to do that super duper limited edition thing, then it'll be five. And then I can sell that for $500 because there's only five. That That's the nature of the beast. The sneaker game is like that. The art game. There's certain things that I see now where, where records will come out and it'll be a $10 record today. It'll sell out tomorrow. And then by the weekend, it's a $100 record. And I'm like, eh, okay. Like I, I get it, but I don't get it, you know, because it shouldn't, it shouldn't jump up in value that quick, you know, because it's going to obviously come back down in the next month or so because people are, are are marking it high so that they can get that that jump on the people who missed out but if you wait around certain things come back down there's certain things that will keep its value but certain things will just will come back down eventually i i just want to put things in people's hands and i, I and, you know i want them to collect it and understand it and appreciate it and then the value goes up and then if they want to flip it so be it you've already paid for it do what you want to do with it yeah and and not just music too i think uh Sitting on eBay right now, I have the entire series of Kimba. I'm selling it, selling it way under what it's worth. Ah, I love Kimba. <laughs> I love well, it's Kimba. Been, it's been sitting on eBay for six months. Zero interest. No buyer wants it. See? But but you know what? And, and But yeah. it's one of those things where it's a certain market. Somebody will want it at some point, you know. 
yeah. but you know everything comes around because there's certain things I tried to sell where nobody wanted it, but then as soon as somebody famous or with a little bit of clout talked about it, now all of a sudden it's become the thing again. You know, uh, girls didn't have an interest in me until I got a girlfriend. Now I can't get the girls off me. And that's the whole collector thing. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. You know, and everything is like that from when you look at like all of the cause stuff or the Mirakami stuff or, you know, everything is just, it's everything is hype now. Everything is just straight hype. But then when you look at people's collections and it's like you have all of the things that are hype beasts, you have no individuality and what things that you truly like. And that's when I tell, that's when I can tell like a true collector or someone who just buys on hype. I, I agree with that, man. I, I want to test your knowledge, though. For those that don't know, Kimba is the first anime series to be produced in color. Do you know what the second was? Uh, what was the second? Here's a hint. It's one of your favorite series of all Astro time. Astro Boy? No. Um, ah, good question. I, I don't, I'm sure if you say it, I'll be like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Marine Boy. Marine Boy. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny? So speaking of Kimba, for people that don't know, you know Disney stole Kimba. Oh yeah, that's that's Lion King ripoff. And Lion sure. King. You know, and that's and that's funny because it's just like there's America again gentrifying and stealing. You know, you stole something that was the Japanese and now look. You know, well, how about this? What if I told you that they embraced it when that thing went on sale in like 2013? That was actually in the description. Like inspired Disney's Lion King. So they're they're using that as a selling point, which as well as they should. I, I have a story for you, and one that I think that only you can appreciate. Uh, when I was 12, back in good old 1997, the theatrical release of the special editions of the Star Wars trilogy were released into theaters at the beginning of the year. I'm sure you remember that. Yes. So for people like yourself raised on cropped VHS copies, this reissue was the first chance for my generation to see these films in an actual movie theater. And if I remember correctly, it came at a time when Star Wars was not necessarily dominating pop culture. Uh, I, I think there was a this was kind of the kickoff to the marketing campaign for the prequels. I think that's the reason why. Right. Long story right. short, though, me and my buddy go, and unbeknownst to me, you got a free action figure upon entering. We arrived early, so my buddy and I went to the arcade in the theater, and as we played various games, we separated. And a grown adult came up to me and said, hey, kid, I'll give you $40 for that toy. And I was like, are you an idiot? Yeah, I'll take your money. I mean, and I, <laughs> I, gave, I gave him my toy, and the adult gave me $40, which to a kid is a lot of money. you know. So I excitedly told my friend about what happened. And instead of him high-fiving me, he called me an idiot. He was like, that toy was worth, if, if not more at the time, it's going to be worth way more down the line. And you just got hustled. And wow, you got you really did get hustled. The thing is, is I haven't been able to track down or pinpoint any toys on eBay or anything to see if that statement was correct. But that moment always stuck with me. Now I think I'm afraid to check to see how much those figures are worth. Well, you should. You should find out and then kick yourself for for letting it go. Well, sh- I mean, shame on the adult for conning a kid, right? <laughs> hey, man. So- there's no shame shame in the collector's market, man. People will hustle and swindle their way to the top, man, to get what they want. Like, you know, like, because I, I, I truly believe, like, me, if if it's something that I want, I will outbid you. I will outphone call you. I will outmoney you to get what I want. What was the last time you felt that way about an item? Honestly, I haven't really felt like that in a while. Simply for the fact is I'm not really on the hunt for anything 
that's going to really run up the, 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 you know, the, the price like that. But the minute something does pop up, oh, I'm back on it. It's, 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 it's a no brainer, especially if it's, if it's like something that's super rare or limited. Yeah. And I want it. Yeah. I'll, I'll get it always. So when, uh, let me see uh, like how you, how your attitude, I guess, over like film is. So when Hollywood decides to cast Wayne Brady as Gravedigger, do you scoff and throw your hands in the air or are you cool with decisions like that? Mm, nah, see, see, especially with film, it has to work. It has to match. The, the, the part has to be played by the right person. You know, you can't just throw anybody in certain roles you know and as gravedigger i'm like yeah you got to have somebody else with you know that look or that class or 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 something like he yeah he somebody like that's definitely not fitting the part for me so what's your take on someone like uh tarantino who kind of footholds bruce lee into his movies like were you offended by his depiction no i wasn't and here's why because one that was tarantino's impression or his telling of a story right it was five minutes out of a three-hour movie anybody who was offended by that it's like so you just you just blocked out the other two hours and 55 minutes of this movie right everyone in holly knows bruce had a little bit of arrogance with him you know i'm not if, if that really did happen i wouldn't be surprised i don't think that happened or you know, Bruce might have had a run in with someone and it might not have been that exact way. But Bruce wasn't like the nice guy. You know, he had his issues with him, too. You know, so and he had his arrogance with him. And, and rightly so. He's Bruce. He was being discriminated against in Hollywood. Yeah, it's you know, I'm not offended by the Tarantino thing because Tarantino always exaggerates every situation. That's what he does. Yeah, fair enough. I was just I was surprised that his family couldn't come to that same viewpoint. Well, you, you, the thing about his family, and it's not even—it's not even his family; it's his daughter. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, that's who I was thinking his, specifically. His daughter. First of all, his daughter is at odds with the original Bruce Lee Foundation people, like people who were legitimate his students, people were who were his legit friends, who used to run his organization, who wouldn't run the organization into the ground and wouldn't license his name just on anything. They're all at odds with the daughter because the daughter controls it now. And she sells his license on potato chips, on soft drinks, on cell phones, because she's keeping money circulating, right? On MMA and all this stuff. Like, she's not keeping his legacy in the, in, in the best interest. She's keeping the money flowing, you know? So I see why she's mad, because if people look at Bruce in a different way, this might stop her money from flowing. Oh, so when Bruce Lee is in a UFC video game, that decision probably came from her. That came from her. Wow. Exactly. Didn't exactly. Know, didn't know she that. makes the decision. Yeah. So like all soft drinks and everything, like things that Bruce Lee would have never been on or his 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 foundation would have never licensed his likeness. She's the one making all the decisions now. So and even that ESPN documentary that came out, there was a lot of things that was left out. Like people don't talk about, you know, Bruce Lee cheating on his wife. Like people don't talk about that. You know, people who were around back in the 70s and know these things, you know, from documentaries that came out back then, they got hints of what was going on. But anything you see of Bruce Lee now going forward, it's going to make him seem like he was the best person. He never did anything wrong, which is not true. His life was definitely short. and We never know what his career would have been had he still been alive. 
You know, he could have went any one of two directions. He could have really been successful doing what he did, or he could have really went, you know, commercial doing something else. You know, so I like none of this surprises me, you know, and and that's why it's hard for me to interview certain people because certain questions are off the table. And I'm like, well, then what's the point in interviewing you? (laughs) You know, like I want to know the real you. I don't want to know the Hollywood you. I want to know the real you. It's the Bedroom Beethoven Podcast. I don't need to tell you that 2020 is a strange time. To add to all the craziness, we still deal with the stigma where if you aren't on the social media platform that everyone's using, you tend to feel left out, right? Well, what if I told you that there is a social media and news curation platform called MyFeed, and their desire is to fix the issues that have been presented to society by social media? For instance, this is a music podcast, right? Well, they aggregate news and social media posts from and about the people that are trending today, enabling users to browse through a feed composed of information from all over the web. And after you choose the topics that you're interested in, my feed's proprietary algorithm finds and ranks the most trending people and stories that you need to see from today. So rather than just seeing what they've posted on Instagram, you're able to read what others are saying about them and what other social networks they're posting on, and you're able to do it all from one place, the MyFeed app. Did you know that the average person misses over 50% of the news that happens today? That is not effective. So MyFeed connects you to the important things that you aren't seeing on your typical social news feed. So with MyFeed, you'll finally be able to escape from the bubble that you've been trapped in on social media. And to see what I'm talking about firsthand, visit MyFeed.today. It's available for Android or Apple, or you can just see what it's all about right there on the website. Again, visit myfeed.today. Get that app, folks. See who's trending today and why without checking a ton of different apps. It's called efficiency, people. Or just type in myfeed, one word, myfeed on Google or the app stores, and it'll pop up. I've had on Rhettmatic, I've had on Steve Arrington, I've had on RJD2, all the guys that have been around music since like the late 80s, the early 90s, the indie labels, the golden eras. And each interview, I'm trying to piece together what exactly is the real. And I was not around when it was beginning, so I can only piece together this information by speaking with people that were. So maybe maybe you can fill in the blanks. You know, hip-hop, b-boying, it came from... The struggle, creating an art form out of poverty. Would I be out of bounds if I said that? Nope, you're absolutely correct. We're calling something the golden era. Well, you know, first of all, like that that term golden era, I, I question that term right there because in any era, if you look in a comic book era and you look, there's bronze comics, there's gold, right? There's silver era. The golden era should not be the 90s. The golden era should be prior because the golden era should be the like the initial eras that sparked this. Right. So like so it's always weird when people I feel like by the 90s is when everything blew up and that was everyone's like teenage years and everybody got hip to it. So that's why it's like the golden era for everybody. But for me, the golden era is the 80s. Because that's the foundations of everything like the 70s is the initial years, 85 86 that's like the golden era because that's when styles and everything was coming to play by the time the 90s hit around mtv was already in full swing and you know it was just like okay now it's accessible to the world and to the masses and that was that changeover that 94 95 era that was that changeover 
before it was like, oh, now it's accept- acceptable to like rap music. When I remember in the 80s, yeah, it was not acceptable for anyone that wasn't black to like rap music. So all the cool stuff that was happening like at Wagner's Ballroom, is that prior to that or was there a little bit of like before the egos and the accessibility trickled in? Well, you got to think about it. When when stuff like Wagner's Ballroom and the Wind Plaza or Wind Ballroom, um, you know, all, the Mayfair, like all of those places were just straight like ballrooms that were being rented out by DJs who were just throwing incredible parties. You knew who was going to be there. It was going to be all black people there, right? That's who it was. There was there was no one else going to these spots. In New York, of course, you had like black and Latino, yes. But in Philly, like you had all black people that was going to these spots. So the accessibility for everybody was not there. When it became accessible to everybody was early 90s, say 91, 92, is when in Philly I started seeing other people at these events. You know, and I could tell you the actually the exact point. We were doing a party called Club Hardcore. Um, it was on Second and Walnut, and the for opening night, Crush Videos was filming. Out, the Son of Berserk came down. Run DMC was there, or Run was there, and Russell Simmons was there. Who, and it was like some other New York heads because the guy Gary who threw the party, Gary was an industry guy, so he knew everybody. This was the first time at a Philly party, a hip hop party. That I had seen white kids there, and it was like, oh shit, what's going? Oh, oh, this is about to change, <laughs> you know. And that yeah. was the defining moment that I was like, okay, this is going someplace else. And it was cool that it went someplace else. It was like, okay, this is cool. So, yeah, it's 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 we're in a weird space right now because it's just so accessible for everybody, and you know, it used to be like everybody was trying to keep it official and and real and raw and then now it's just like so much fraudulence comes into play and it's accepted you know everything's just become accepted whether it's being dissed behind doors behind closed doors is one thing but it's being accepted to the masses and no one's speaking up on what's whack and what's not whack let's stay in that time period are you familiar with treacherous funk disco yes they lived in they lived in winfield i believe and they I think they were on 58th Street, which was right around where Will Smith is from. Right. He, yeah, he lived like four or five blocks. I mean, if I'm brushing up on my Philly history, I'm looking at DJ Spinbad. I'm looking at DJ Groove, uh, Freddie Blast. I'm looking at people like that, you know? Yeah. Because when it came to spinning breaks, he was the guy to beat. You know, the right. 80s rolled around. He had that SP-12. I think you have that SP-12 have now, that actually. SP-12. Yeah, you yeah. have that now. So he was one of the first cats to have one. Because you couldn't go to your local store and just pick it up. So if you had it, you had it. I'm from Winfield. So, like, you know, Groove, that's my OG. That's who taught me to DJ, right? Like, or that's who taught me to be official DJing. Because I was already DJing before I met him. But he taught me how to be official. And, um, you know, and, like, Will lived around the corner from me. Like, I grew up with Will. Will, It's funny because Will used to actually manage me and my old MC, who used to be Will's dancer. Right. So I, you know, I seen Will. I knew Will. I knew Will's brother, Will's sister. Um, her name was the Fresh Princess. Like, you know, she was she was an MC. Her and her her other girlfriend, they had a crew, you know. So, yeah, that like and Spinbad. And like, let's talk about Spinbad for a second. Spinbad is the guy who created the Transformer Scratch. Japan. USA. 
He's the guy who created the Transformers scratch. Is there a, is there a misconception about who created that? There's always been a misconception about who's created because there's so many stories going around about like, you know, the person, first person who did it, you know, on wax and the first person who did it on radio and the first person who did it, you know, wherever. The person who did it first was Spinbad and Spinbad did it at an all city DJ battle at the wind at the wind ballroom and that was the first time anyone in the city had heard it so he was the first person to do it and then everybody else took it and did the first person on wax first person wherever first person on tour whatever but it was spin bag who did it first So you have you have the like you have these people like DJ Double K who's uploading a bunch of these practice tapes from the eighties featuring Grandmaster Nelly Nell. Still to this day, you have mixes that the people who made them don't even have, and you hold on to stuff like that because the minute it hits YouTube, its value is now decreased. So is what he, is what he doing? Like, I mean, is there a, a camp of people that believe these tapes aren't collectors' items? They are music that should be heard. What's the stance? What's the argument? Is he is he committing like a faux pas in music? No, I just feel like people want to feel important, so people just throw what they have out there because everybody like the the thing is we're living in a liked society. Everybody wants likes, everybody wants hits, everybody you know, for me, I'm preserving this stuff because at the end of the day, I'm going to try and do a museum or a showcase or something. You know, I this is black culture. I believe black culture has value. If we keep giving everything out free, then where's the value in it? So I'm a historian with this. I'm trying to collect every Philly flyer, every New York flyer, you know, every every Japan flyer. What I'm I'm trying to be the historian so that I can present this in a in in a correct way, whether it's a book or whether it's a museum or whatever, it needs to be presented. If we just keep putting everything on YouTube, nobody like people watch it and but they don't really respect that. You know, but everybody wants likes and 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 sight hits. I think you just defined the IG battles that are going on right now. The IG battles is another thing. Yes, it's 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 that's what it is. It's it's everybody likes wants likes and like and uh, I mean it's there's, there's no right or wrong in that. You know, people do things for a different reason. You know, I know collectors who will never ever show what they have because they don't want the world knowing and they're collecting for them. And I applaud them for that. You know, that's that's good because the 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 art collector with the craziest art collection isn't telling people what he has he's telling his circle of other collectors what they have but he's not telling the world you know what he has so i i i I, you know i appreciate that and then once you show your hand then everybody starts trying to get or buy what you have in your hand so i get it and then i also get why people showcase everything so when when dnd studios shut its doors five years ago uh, i mentioned that because you were present around the recording period of return of the boom bap with quote unquote yes. rising star DJ Premier, um, you have one of the early tapes. Yes, before I, a twelve inch even dropped. So y- you have that. You're not going around telling people you have that. Nope. Uh, but before that was in mass consumption. What was your take on it? Let's just say hindsight's twenty twenty, of course. But you're talking about the debut album of KRS One. If that album was garbage, you probably wouldn't have held on to it. But because it's a classic, you you knew when you heard it, like this is worth collecting. I'm going to put this in a drawer. This is part of my collection. No, but and but that's the misconception because I, I never set out to collect. It was just I had it 
and it's a it's a moment from my life and a time from my life. So it just sat there. Like I have garbage tapes or garbage albums that I'm like, oh man, so and so gave me this. But like if I go back and listen, look at it like 30 years later, I'm like, oh, I was actually in the studio when so and so did this, or you know, I was on tour when so and so gave me this. So everything is a story, you know, regardless of the quality of it. Everything's a story, you know, so that album could have been garbage. But the fact that I was in D&D at that time, this, that's the story. For sure, because people are always saying, how can you let an iconic place like that shut down? But I never knew that Primo ended up buying the joint. But the worst part is, is he signed a lease with a demolition clause, which allows them to terminate the lease anytime if they decide to tear down the building. Primo should have had a lawyer present when he signed that. <laughs> well, yeah, that, but that's the that's that's a lot of things. What's what really sucks about like D and D or or anything right now? Not even not even studio wise, but look at how many like institutions were in New York. Whether it was like the famous uh, cafe or the famous restaurant or the famous bar that had been in Times Square since 1965 you know, and was there all throughout the crack era. And then through the nineties, it was the after hour spot where people left the club and then went and got a good burger. Those people rented for 50 years and never owned the building. So when somebody came in and wanted to put condos there, it was a wrap. Who would have ever thought any of this stuff would close down or, or condos would be the big thing. Who would have ever thought, but look how many iconic studios are no longer there. Uh, King house of metal, uh, just like everything that was in New York. What what was the one uh was that the one uh Just Blaze owned? What did Just Blaze buy? Um You'll have to educate me on that one. He Just Blaze, I thought he had he had bought one of the studios at one time. I forgot what it was, but there was a studio he had, which was like a legendary studio. But it was like it's it's cause he I think he changed the name to baseline, but I I could have sworn he he bought one of the like the OG like old school spots. But, you know, like all of those places, I mean, look at all of the clubs, look at Cielo, look at Home Base and the Muse and the Tunnel and all those spots, all those clubs in the 90s that I used to go to. Those people didn't own the property. You know, they were paying the landlord to throw to, to have a club there. It kind of sucks because no one thought about that, that in the future, condos would be the thing and landlords would just be like, I'm going to take this money and sell this property. Like you say, DJs only care about a paycheck. Club owners only care about how much they're making at the bar and the party goers, they only care about getting drunk. So how do you stay in love with the craft? How are, how are you still getting booked at places that appreciate what you do? Well, for one, like I'm, I love music. So regardless of whether I'm making a living off of this or I have to go work a nine to five, I'm always going to come home and listen to music. Like that's just, that's just who I am. So I think it's the adrenaline and the thrill of me playing a party or me jumping on a flight and going to another country. It's that adrenaline or labels sending me a new test press or promo. It's, it's, it's all adrenaline based, you know, so unless it stops unless labels stop sending and there's no music coming out, I'm going to always want to listen to music or DJ this music. I have fun. It's what's keeping me young. You know, like I feel like I have an age one bit, because this DJ world is really just keeping me feeling young. So as long as it's keeping me young, I think I'm going to have that hunger to always do it. Yeah. I mean, next year is going to be 40 years you've been doing it, man, since 81. Yeah. Which is which is crazy to even think about, like, getting one turntable and a mixer for Christmas, right? And then scratching to a tape deck for two months before I got another turntable. Like, that's 
that's crazy. Like that's discipline. Most kids will, most kids today are getting two turntables right out the, out the gate. I had to save lunch money to get records. There's no, there was no Serato. Like, like I had to save lunch money. There was no downloading. I know it's in the podcast name, but perhaps all these bedroom producers and and DJs at home, they they litter the internet without having to go out in public and battle and get booed, you know, so they don't, that's how you get perfected, you know, but there's so many introverts, there's so many people that, that just want to diss people online instead, and now the next generation might be a little bit softer, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I remember my first my first like um elementary school dj battle out in the schoolyard i remember losing that battle cuz i i wasn't good i don't even think i had my own turntables at that time i think i was still practicing on like somebody from school's older brother's turntables and like i lost that battle and that was a very hurting feeling of losing that battle you know at like 11 11 years old that's a hurting feeling and i and i woke up and i said you know what i'm never losing a battle again and after that day it was like, okay, I'm battling these other 11-year-olds and I'm winning. You know, and back then we were battling for crates of records. You know, it might have only been five records in the crate, but we were battling for crates of records. You know, so yeah. And even my OG, he wouldn't, if we were doing shows or something, he was, he would like, he would, if I wasn't ready, he, yeah, he wasn't letting me touch a mic or touch the turntables or you step on stage. He, you know, he wasn't because that's what an OG is supposed to do. Not let you showcase until you're ready. You know, and it's too easy for a lot of bedroom people to just, you know, I'm going to put up my SoundCloud song, you know, and it's just like, well, who did you test it on? You know, like you didn't test it on anybody. Well, you you tweeted today that America will never be what it once was. And I'm not saying that in a good way either. And that is it's straight to the point, man. You know, how do you think things are going to change? Everyone used to look at us because we were a leader. And now everyone's looking at us because we're the fools with egg on our face. Right. So that's one. No one's taking us serious, but when you look at the presidency situation and how he's alienating not only the people of this country, but alienating other countries, right? And how we're locked down and how this pandemic, we're like, we're, we're at absorbent numbers right now. We're blocked from going to certain European countries because they're like, nah, you guys stay over there. Don't bring that. We always had free reign to travel this world. Now we can't travel at all how do you think someone an artist who travels for work feels we're 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 screwed you know i'm not traveling djs aren't traveling until 2021 period it's not happening there's no festivals there's no clubs you know and even if there's a club in korea the korean government's going to be like nope americans aren't allowed in until you get your shit right you know, until until you get healthy again. Here's the only thing that I can offer up. You've you've weathered the iPod, MP3, streaming, traveling, not traveling, pandemics, highs, lows, and you're still here. And I have no reservations about you being able to thrive and adapt. I, I really don't. I mean, there's a, there's a couple people that I worry about. You, I'm not worrying about. My OG used to tell me, like, when it came to, like, relationships and, you know, you, you break up with your little girlfriend or whatever. And I remember he told me one time, he was like, Never, never, never let anyone put you in a position that knocks your world off its axis, 
right? So in this situation, I know how to adapt. And it's like, yo, I can still be creative at home doing other things. Because, and that's the good thing. When you have a creative genes and creative bones in you and, and multiple interests, you can jump on any of those interests to, to survive, to make a living, you know, to do whatever. People who do one thing, who, you know, they're pretty much relying on that one avenue or lane, they're the ones who really can't adapt because they have focused so long on that one thing that it's hard for them to even reinvent themselves yeah, right now. There's a lot. And and this is kind of the part where, like, I want everyone to know all these lanes. I want you to not only tell people where they can find you, but I also want you to promote that app, the interview series, Nostalgia King, um, Wishful Thinking, but the $2 Soul Show coming back, <laughs> all that, man. So I, I want to give you the floor to kind of promote all those avenues. Yeah, so you know my my uh, streaming app on Nerve FM is nerve.fm slash Scheme Richards. And it's basically a streaming app where I put all my mixes, video content, um, just ex- all exclusive content up there, record um, recommendations of the day. Uh, you know, you just get you get so much content and I can live stream on it so I don't have to worry about getting knocked off by Instagram or any of that. Um, so, you know, I, like I highly recommend if you love good music of all genres, my Nerve FM um, app is like is the way to go. It's Apple and Android. It's definitely the way to go. You can stream the mixes. You can download the mixes. Um, you know, NostalgiaKing.com. That's where I do all record reviews of all the latest stuff that's coming out from all like all the independent labels, funk, soul, jazz, hip hop, whatever. Um, I also do art reviews and, and as well as like, you know, new book reviews on like books that I really, I'm really digging. Um, you know, that, and you know, the, the usual scheme riches, Instagram, you know, I guess, I guess that's the, definitely the best place like scheme riches, Instagram, Facebook, I'm on there, but the scheme riches, Instagram is really where I'm just like going heavy on, um, Twitter at hot peas and butter. You know, I, I bug out on, on Twitter. Twitter's my, like my release when, when I just want to go rant or or whatever, just bug out. So, yeah, you know, I'm I'm around. I'm 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 here, there, and everywhere. I love that, man. Scheme. I just I want to thank you for bringing a slice of Philly to the podcast, for gracing my podcast with your presence. A million thank yous. Yo, no doubt, man. I mean, hey, you had some of the heavy hitters on there, and you had my man J Zone. So I'm like, yeah, this is definitely up my alley, and I'm enjoying this. So you know, much props to you on doing this show because I feel like. Like this is important, especially right now for people, you know, like it, it was important when you started it and it's important now, especially with the pandemic going on and just like giving people the outlet to speak and, and just talk about their life and, you know, their craft or whatever. So, you know, much props to you because I know it's not easy doing journalism at all. <laughs> it's a one man show over here. You know it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's but it's dope, man. Keep doing what you do for real. I appreciate you, man. Thanks so much. No doubt.